Hello, and welcome to another exciting podcast for Observation Medicine. If you've forgotten, we call it a Pobscast. It's been uh, right around a year since we did a show, and uh, we're happy to do another show here today. And I'm surrounded by my esteemed colleagues, Dr. Michael Ross and Dr. Wheatley. Again, my name is Anwar Osborne. And uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time giving an overall update on the status of several things in the world of observation medicine and maybe talk about an evidence-based article. So we'll start with Mike. Uh, Dr. Ross, do you have any updates in the world of obs medicine as it relates to the two-midnight rule? Yeah, let, let me uh, give, an, give kind of a synopsis on what's going on with Medicare, observation services, and the two-minute rule because it's the, the two t- observation and the two-minute rule are like this Venn diagram that overlap in a lot of ways. You can't easily talk about one without covering the other. Are you going to talk about Ebola? <clears throat> well, um, I have been quarantined from <laughs> discussions of that topic at the moment. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> anyway, um, so so the um, as far as as it relates to to Medicare. Um, with the changes to the two-minute rule and all the pressure on hospitals to uh, pay uh, patients that, uh, that are short-stay admissions, meaning less than two minutes, as outpatient rather than inpatient, there's been a, a kind of a landslide of uh, uh, claims and administrative um, burden on Medicare and the payers, such that uh, CMS has, uh, has provided kind of an amnesty period where they, they'll allow hospitals to be paid um, 68% of the net allowable amount for a, kind of a grace period if they submit forms. Um, that's available on the CMS website under CMS Inpatient Hospital Reviews, um, and that's currently ongoing. Uh, really, as it relates to observation and the two-minute rule, um, as you may know, there's, there's, there's two, um, two areas that CMS addresses this. One is the inpatient prospective payment system, or IPPS. And the other one is the outpatient prospective payment system, or OPPS. Now, once a year, they come out with proposed rules, which are open for public comment. They review the comments, and then then they publish a final comment and a decision on how uh, payment will proceed. Uh, So let me take the IPPS proposed rules and final comments first, and then we'll talk about the OPPS uh, proposed rules uh, with uh, final comments uh, pending. The, let's see, August 22nd, um, CMS published its IPPS final rule synopsis. Now, in the, op- in the proposed rules, they really didn't make uh, what I would call any subst- substantive changes in, op- in, in the two-minute rule, um, but they did ask um, for the public to comment on um, proposals for uh, what they called short inpatient hospital stays. Uh, they were soliciting ideas from the public as to how that how that might occur, and it's it's not clear if they were talking about observation stays that would be paid under this new short inpatient uh, payment policy, or perhaps the more likely scenario, which is a short inpatient stay that fell outside the two minute rule that might qualify for this. So that 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 was a little bit murky, but uh, they received a lot of comments. They summarized them, and the, at the end of the day, they said, "Thank you. We'll consider this," but made no changes. But I think the comments are worth worth uh, quickly summarizing. Uh, they received a lot of comments. Uh, people asked that the uh, that a short inpatient stay be uh, appropriate and adequate payment for the medically necessary services that spend less than two midnights. Um, 
uh, they said in principle that the payment should not exceed the full IPPS payment for the corresponding condition. Uh, they said that the, the policy should not be applied to what's called the inpatient-only list. Now, the inpatient-only list is a list of thousands of, of conditions. They're generally procedures, surgical or outpatient procedures, that are paid only as an inpatient uh, by Medicare. Occasionally, they'll flip things from the inpatient only list off the list, so it could be inpatient or outpatient, but they're saying don't apply this to patients on the inpatient only list. Another commenter said it should be budget neutral. Um, and then a, an important point is that hospitals ask that if they create this mini DRG or the sh short inpatient um, stay policy, that the hospitals should be eligible for add on pay payments such as DISH and IME, which is very important. There are additional financial payments that help support hospitals that are part of inpatient payment, not part of outpatient payment, and they ask that that be uh, included in whatever uh, payment occur, and that the payment could either be full or on a prorata uh, basis. Another commenter said that cost sharing should be the same as inpatient, not as outpatient. Can I ask you a question real quick about that? So just for the listeners that may not be quite as familiar, what's the difference between cost sharing for inpatients and outpatients as it relates to Medicare? Well, inpatients pay at one time roughly $1,200, probably $1,250, over $1,200 um, copay for an inpatient admission. And that extends to 30 days for related services. And that's their deductible. That's Yeah, that's their deductible. And so you would, if you did that, if you paid $1,250 for an admission for, say, pneumonia, mm -hmm. right, uh, in January, mm -hmm. and then in August of the same year, you had pneumonia again, you would pay another twelve fifty. That's my understanding. Okay. Um, the um, on, on the other hand, for for outpatient, you pay a twenty percent copay for the individual components of your outpatient care. So there's a payment for the visit, which for observation is a combination of the ED or clinic visit with the observation visit. There's a copayment for say the MRI. There's a copayment for um, a, perhaps a stress test. The little nickel-dime things like the blood tests, the, the EKGs, the Tylenol, those are packaged in the in the visit. Um, and, and Medicare is shifting towards packaging more and more of those smaller things like perhaps plane films in, into the visit payment. But anyway, uh, so the, the commenter's point was that there should be consideration of, of cost-sharing ob obligations that are more similar to the inpatient cost-share than the outpatient cost-share. Uh, Another said there shouldn't be increase in administrative burdens. Um, another said that hospitals should have time to implement that. That's always a big issue, as we've seen with the two-minute rule. Some have suggested that this be a per diem model, which is similar to existing transfer uh, policy payment, and perhaps creating a separate MSDRG weights or short-stay case weights. Uh, others expressed concerns with this system uh, based on... Uh, fundamental design issues with that approach. Um, of course, uh, astutely some pointed out that there's an, a need for additional research and collaboration. Uh, and then as uh, MedPAC, which is uh, I believe Congress's advisory group, uh, indicated that they intended to explore alternative short-stay policies in this upcoming work cycle. And as I said, at the end of the day, they, they made no fundamental changes in, in, um, in this approach. Um, let me remind you that there's really four main parts to the two-minute rule. One is the benchmark, which is which is the two-minute the two rule itself, which is a physician's told that if he expects with the patient's condition, resources that the patient will need more than two minutes of care, that that patient really 
it should be um, assigned inpatient status. Um, the uh, presumption, and, 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 they, and it's important that physicians document that medical decision making in the chart. So for emergency physicians, if any way that you can document that or admitting uh, physicians, if it's clear that that's uh, the intent, then that helps the case. The presumption is the next of the four pieces is where the reviewers, the RAC, the MAC, the auditors, when they review cases, if it looks like the benchmark was appropriately applied, then the presumption is that it was appropriate and that the case should be paid as an inpatient. The third part is that there has to be an order for admission. Um, and it seems silly that that's required, but it's they, apparently there was a need to tighten that up. And then the fourth part is that once the patient's admitted, the admitting physician has to certify that the patient really needed uh, two minutes of care and that admission was appropriate. So let me, let me uh, get back to the fourth part in just a minute here. Um, in OPPS, uh, which was in the proposed rules which were published July 14th, um, CMS, uh, actually it's interesting, but they, they, they made a proposed change in the two-minute rule and they proposed that the fourth part, the, which is the certification, be lifted. Uh, and for a lot of hospitals, that, that was, that's actually been the most complicated part of having the physician certify or document that the patient needed that inpatient admission. Um, they're proposing that, that the certification be, uh, that requirement remain in place only for um, outliers, as they call it. And they define an outlier as, as a patient that was expected to need more than 20 days of inpatient care, and that that certification has to be on the chart before the patient hits the 20-day mark. Now, I, I think that's very, very, a great change. I don't see anybody complaining about that, and I think it's probably going to stand when um, CMS publishes the final rule on OPPS, which will probably be uh, sometime in November or December. One other thing about the two, so just, just a, uh, a reminder, the, the exceptions to the two-minute rule benchmark are patients who die, patients who are transferred, patients who have uh, an uh, unexpected clinical improvement, which may be a little bit nebulous, uh, patients who elect hospice care, so they come in and they're transferred to hospice in less than two minutes, and patients that leave against medical advice. The next part is the uh, kind of a, an update on, on observation services itself. The APC for observation services is the Extended Assessment and Management APC, or APC 8009. And, and this year, there's no fundamental changes in the payment structure for that APC. There is a slight uh, adjustment in payment, uh, a $70 decrease uh, in payment as this year as opposed to last year where they actually increased payment for that APC by $559. So, uh, and the requirements, as you may remember for this APC, are, there's four things. There has to be a physician order, there has to be a preceding um, hospital visit uh, that qualifies, such as a clinic visit, a type A or type B, ED visit, critical care, or direct referral uh, for observation care. There has to be a minimum of eight hours of observation um, and there has to be no associated T-status procedure. So if a patient has observation and endoscopy, they pay the endoscopy, but they consider observation to be included in payment for that endoscopy, and the observation time is packaged. That's if it's not uh, a visit that... Uh, that's if it's not a visit that needs, a, like, an upper GI bleed. Mm -hmm. If the endoscopy is included in that, as part of the observation state, does that mean that that's a T-status procedure and like all of the observation care is built into it? 
Yeah, so so they they pay considerably more for an endoscopy. Uh, they would pay the ED visit, but they would not pay the composite APC, which is a combination of the ED visit plus observation. They would pay the endoscopy, but they wouldn't pay the APC for observation because that's a T-status procedure. And the so, way, so and that's you know, for facility building, though. That's, not, for, yeah, that's not professional yeah, CPT right. codes. Yeah, everything we're talking about today is just facility, is facility building. building. Okay. Uh, There's nothing to do with physician building. Uh, so, so the and the way it happens on the back end is the hospital would still bill observation because Medicare needs to to track and understand how often observation occurred with a major procedure. But on their claims processing software on the Medicare end, it would kick out the observation bill. It would pay the ED visit. It would pay the endoscopy, but it would kick out the observation bill and not pay this this APC eight zero zero nine. It would pay the e, e, emergency department um, APC, which would be hick pick. 99285, for example, or 99284. Um, the, uh, the, the payment uh, proposed for this year for that uh, composite APC of the ED visit plus observation is uh, $1,287. Um, to put it in perspective, the payment for the ED APC alone is $456. Um, and uh, last year, the APC was about $70 more. So. Anyway, uh, that's that's my synopsis of what's going on with Medicare. In summary, the there's this uh, amnesty period for uh, denied inpatient claims pen, pending the final rollout of um, the two-minute rule, probably April 1st of 2015. There's all these great comments with no um, implementation uh, stated for the short inpatient uh, stay. There's continuing the, the two-minute rule with the exceptions, and... Um, and the changes proposed of, of lifting the exemption. That's probably the biggest news that they're they're going to lift the exemption for the two minute rule. Right. You mean for the for the certification? For or? yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, that that's probably the biggest change that they're going to lift the certification requirement uh, for the two minute rule. So you know, it seems to me that uh, there's a couple things. I guess that whether you're a, a utilization review physician or uh, OBS physician, I guess, to do to get ready for kind of the continued rollout of the two midnight rule, and that would be, I guess, to to meet with your utilization review folks and make sure that they are using the two midnight rule, and obviously get an idea of uh, continued floor OBS cases, the short inpatient stays, uh, long outpatient stays, get an idea of the case mix as this rule is being implemented. Um, I know that a lot of folks in the OBS world get a lot of pressure from administration to take all non-admitted patients in their unit, even if they're not necessarily traditional OBS cases. So it's a good idea, I think, to have your finger on the pulse of what your utilization review team uh, is looking at at your particular hospital, so you can speak into that. Um, Mike, can you think of anything else that, you know, as this rule is getting ready to be kind of rolled out, uh, the you know, the final rule and, and Medicare is going to start kind of enacting penalties, you know, when it's not applied appropriately. Anything else you can think that hospitals, physicians, OBS managers need to do to kind of get ready for it? No, you know, I, <clears throat> I think most hospitals have, have, have had this uh, extended grace period to make sure that they have the order um, requirement met and the um, certification requirement met, which will be probably lifted. A lot of national activity from specialty organizations, uh, lawsuits and letters, trying to eliminate or halt the two-minute rule. Uh, and it seems like from what's going on in the Federal Register that this is going to continue and will probably be rolled out uh, April 1st. 
but you know, who knows until that, that comes around. Right now, it's become a bit of a political football that probably they're not going to halt because it would be uh, su such a big change in Medicare uh, policy planning. Okay. And last question, really briefly, just because we don't have show notes, not yet. Is there a website or something you can direct them to that is there a website you can direct them to or anything, any easy place to go just because there's a lot of information? But Yeah, you know, a, a lot of um, everything I've shared today is from the CMS uh, website uh, under CMS, CMS inpatient hospital reviews or the Federal Register. Now, uh, granted, the Federal Register is a massive number of pages, so uh, I'll, um, I'll see if there's some way that I can share this with um, the observation section um, for, for review. All right. Sounds good. We'll actually come back to that in just a second, but uh, to kind of give us an overall or more rounded view of what's been going on in the world of OBS, Maybe uh, Dr. Wheatley can share with us uh, one of his favorite articles that has come out in the past couple of couple of months. Couple okay. of well, maybe yeah. if it's, it came out earlier this year, right? Uh, yeah, it came out in August uh, 2014. So oh. uh, it's always, I guess, exciting when there's uh, good observation uh, medicine studies published in the literature. So we wanted to discuss uh, Ben Sun's paper, uh, which was a multi-center. Uh, randomized trial on uh, for syncope patients of traditional inpatient care versus ED care. Uh, this study this study saw uh, enrolled patients at five different centers and was essentially the multi-center validation, as you will, of the the SEED study, which was a single center study done uh, back in the early 2000s. Um, so this was published in the August edition of Annals of, of Emergency Medicine. So you can find it on. Uh, uh, find on the interwebs that way. Um, so, what they briefly what they were looking for their primary outcomes were inpatient admission rate and length of stay. Their secondary outcomes were thirty day and six month serious adverse events after hospital discharge, and then they looked at index and thirty day hospital costs. They also looked at thirty day quality of life scores and thirty day patient satisfaction scores. Um, as I mentioned, this was five different EDs. They randomized 124 patients total. Uh, one thing to point out is it's the patient selection criteria. So there's not a lot of data out there as to who can be discharged from the emergency department, who needs to go inpatient, and who can go to an observation unit. So they crafted uh, a criteria that they used for this study and basically uh, put patients into three risk categories. The high-risk categories were any serious condition identified in the emergency department, and this was, you know, things that the emergency department physician felt to be serious. Any history of ventricular arrhythmias, any cardiac device implanted in the patient with obvious dysfunction, exertional syncope, a presentation concerning for acute coronary syndrome, known severe valve disease, known ejection fraction less than 40%, uh, an EKG with findings of prolonged QT interval greater than 500 milliseconds, uh, pre-excitation, non-sustained VTAC, and then emergency physician judgment. So those were the high-risk criteria, and those patients were admitted, were not enrolled in the study. Uh, the low-risk criterion were basically symptoms consistent with orthostatic or vasovagal syncope, 
and that the emergency physician felt that no further diagnostic testing was needed. Uh, and then the and those folks were not enrolled in the study and were probably largely discharged. The intermediate intermediate risk patients were the ones that were not high risk and not low risk, and the emergency physician felt that these patients needed further diagnostic testing. So if they met this criteria and they were enrolled in the study uh, and were randomized to either inpatient care or ED observation unit care, if they went to the inpatient unit, then the inpatient physicians, the internal medicine team, managed those patients at their own discretion. If they went to the observation unit, they were managed via an observation protocol. Uh, and the observation protocol called for 12 hours of cardiac monitoring. They got two serial cardiac troponin tests uh, six hours apart. Uh, an, a rest echocardiogram was ordered for patients with uh, cardiac murmur on uh, physical exam and if they hadn't had an echo done in the previous six months. Uh, and then other testing was done at the discretion of the team. So if they felt they needed... Uh, neurologic testing or, or other labs and stuff like that, that was done uh, at the discretion of the treating team. So what they found is not uh, uncommon to other research that's been done looking at OBS units versus uh, inpatient stay for things like atrial fibrillation or uh, TIAs. Basically, they found that there was a reduction in inpatient admission rate, 15% versus 92%. Uh, shorter hospital length of stay for the folks who went to the OBS unit, 29 versus 47 hours. Uh, the serious outcome rates after hospital discharge were similar. Um, they also found that the index costs in the observation group were lower uh, and that there was no difference in 30-day or 30-day uh, quality of life scores. So basically, from a, from a medical care standpoint, they, they found essentially that it was not inferior to traditional inpatient care, but from a utilization standpoint, they found it was superior, that it, it saved money uh, and it reduced inpatient days, which was probably the prime driver for saving money. Uh, and all this is not surprising, that, that we're not necessarily doing anything novel in the observation unit. We're, we're getting the same kind of testing. Um, you know, you can argue maybe emergency physicians would be inclined to test less on some of these patients, um, but they also found that being able to do it more efficiently saved healthcare dollars. Um, and with the two midnight rule coming, uh, emergency physicians and OBS units are going to own the, the lion's share of syncope patients presenting through the emergency department. It's going to be very hard to get these patients as a full admit unless they have some other diagnosis like non-sustained VTAC or lower or GI bleed or something like that. Or one of those things in the serious or the, the high-risk criteria. Exactly. You, you won't be able to put a diagnosis of syncope and expect that that will be an admittable diagnosis. It will have to be syncope due to non-sustained VTAC or not due to uh, something else. Right. I mean, um, and, 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 you know, it, it seems intuitive in that uh, those high-risk criteria, those people wouldn't be done in two days anyway, in two midnights. So. Right. Correct, correct. And so, you know, I think further research in this could be further defining specifically a low-risk group that could be sent home from the ED. You know, I think they did a good job uh, kind of coming up with their criteria for, for this. But, you know, the years go on, fewer people are having to stay in the hospital for syncope. We're realizing that a lot of folks and, and all the dollars we've spent on these tests and, and 
costly admissions really aren't yielding diagnoses and really aren't necessary. It may not have an impact on mortality, but we're not also impacting symptom-free time for patients from all these tests. So you really want to catch that group of folks, be it uh, neurogenic or cardiogenic, that, that would benefit from increased observation and increased <coughs> So. Well, all I can say is uh, hats off to Ben Sun and his research group. Woo! Oh, yeah. Round of applause. No, really, this this is great. This this is now how many randomized controlled trials? It's like three. This is the ninth randomized controlled trial of of treating a condition in the abs in a protocol driven ab setting versus the hospital. It's it's the I think the second one for syncope, but it's the ninth RCT. And so far, all the randomized controlled trials have shown that with appropriate patient selections, ED and observation interventions, and defined uh, disposition criteria, the outcomes favor OBS. Right, that's good. And uh, you know, the 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 one that that really was the the hot button in in OBS literature before this was the seed study, which really wasn't the kind of OBS unit that most places would run. And so in the Ben Sun paper, it's much more of like your classic type one sort of setting. Uh, and I think we can look to that as, uh, as kind of a roadmap to what to do in the future. You know, and, and of note, like as far as what I think med students and residents are still kind of familiar with is the San Francisco syncope rule, which, you know, the data is not really there if you look at like the modern stuff or like whether or not you're supposed to do something with a with an ER patient or not, but I think like there's there's a significant amount of overlap with the high risk criteria, and for in the in the Ben Sun paper and the high risk criteria in the uh, San Francisco syncope rule. You know, it would be really interesting to me if there was a retrospective sort of like uh, analysis of like the patients that three or four OBS units would admit whether or not they would be San Francisco syncope rule positive or they would meet high risk criteria like. Yeah. What is that? What, I mean, how are we missing this population that get 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 admitted? Right. Well, and all the all the decision rules like the Rose syncope or Boston syncope rule, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think were not created with observation in mind with that kind right. of third tier uh, level of decision making. So it's it's more of a binary admit or send home. Right. Um, so yeah, you know, it'll be it'll be interesting to see. Uh, but, but it'll be a very hard study to do because obviously syncope is not a it's not a disease it's a symptom so it really right. kind of coalesces a lot of different processes that could be going on in the patient so it's going to be really hard to develop a you know really good decision rule um, right. around that but I, I think looking at some of these kind of retrospectively and applying some of these rules and seeing you know something shakes out in terms of a an observable population that's definitely a uh, definitely an area for for further study. And, and it's important to understand, as, as you indicated, that not all patients with syncope should go to the ABS unit. Uh, no. Some should go home, some should, and some should still be admitted. Yeah. Uh, so uh, just to move on just a little bit, to kind of circle back to Mike's update, and this is really something we can mention uh, in brief, although it's a great paper. Uh, in the MythBuster category, it's called The uh, Origin and Disposition of Medicare Observation Stays done by a uh, handful of PhDs in, uh, out of Cornell and the uh, University of Iowa. And uh, the lead author is uh, Dr. Dr. Feng. And basically they took 100% uh, of Medicare uh, inpatient and outpatient claims data uh, from 2009 and looked at their disposition pre and post uh, their hospital stay. 
And uh, as you would probably guess, most of the patients uh, came from and were discharged to the community. Uh, and uh, there were a little, little bit more than a million total observation stays um, that were at risk for the high uh, out-of-pocket expenses uh, related to the post-observation uh, sniff care, kind of like how uh, Mike alluded to earlier. Uh, however, if you break down the data, it's a very small amount of people uh, who were discharged to a skilled nursing facility uh, and uh, uh, were at risk for these stays. It, out of the in the disposition of the hospital observation stays, it's somewhere around uh, 0.75% of the patients who uh, came to the hospital with Medicare and were discharged to a, a, a sniff and did not ever switch over to inpatient criteria. So, so to put like bigger numbers around that, over of over a, 1 million observation visits, 7,500 were, were this where this group was sniff benefits at risk. So it's it's not, you know, not a big amount of numbers. Right. And so, so you know, there's a lot of patients who say, you know, don't put me in observation status because uh, if I have to go to a nursing home, it's going to cost a lot of money. Uh, and to an extent, you know, that uh, hypothetical scenario is true or was true. Uh, but really in the numbers, when you look at all of the people who had observation stays, there's a very small amount of people that happened to. And further, with the two-midnight rule, uh, if you're in the hospital for more than two midnights, your status should be changed to an inpatient, and uh, you can get closer to your three days. That doesn't completely solve the problem, uh, but it does make inroads into a situation that uh, was definitely hurting uh, a lot of, uh, or a fair amount of, of seniors. 7,500 people is not... It's not zero people. Right. Uh, and also, you know, th this was done back in 2009. There was no two-minute rule then. Uh, and uh, the, the paper also pointed out that the people who were in this uh, 7,500 were more likely to have these long uh, outpatient stays, which the two-minute rule is there partially to address. So uh, go ahead, Mike. A couple, a couple interesting um, points in that paper. <clears throat> One is that, Actually, uh, of the million observation visits, 29,000 29, went to a SNF, but 62% of those patients came from a SNF. Uh, another 8% came from a nursing home. For, so for those patients, going back to a SNF isn't going to cause them to lose their SNF benefit. That's where they came from. So it's just a small little sliver, well, maybe not so small, 7,000 is, is not insignificant. It, it's a small group that uh, went back to a SNF. What's really interesting is if you look at a different uh, paper, it's the OIG report where they analyzed observation visits. They, found, they looked at this uh, specific issue, and they found that 92% of the time when patients went from observation to a SNF, even though Medicare wasn't supposed to pay uh, the, the, the SNF benefit, Medicare paid the SNF benefit. So what that suggests is that of this 75% that uh, went to observation, lost their SNF benefit, as much as 92% may have still gotten the SNF benefit paid. So that 7,500 is probably even smaller than what we see. And there may be other co-insurance and other things. So really, we're talking about a small group that are clearly negatively affected by uh, not getting their SNF benefit. I think the issue is some groups have called for Medicare to abandon or eliminate observation services entirely based on this 
less than 1% group. And, I, I, and really what that suggests is that the solution is not to eliminate observation services, but to fix this problem in that, that if, if Medicare can uh, make changes to address this problem, it won't, it won't drive up Medicare expenses and it'll make a lot of the, of the patients happier. But really, to, to say eliminate um, um, observation services altogether based on 0.75% of observation Medicare patients is just over the top. Right. And, uh, well, I think we've covered a lot uh, in this uh, comeback show for 2014. And uh, ASAP is coming up in Chicago. Both of you guys are going? Yeah. Yeah? Okay. All right. So we'll be at the uh, observation section section meeting. Right. Interest group is for SAEM. But we'll be there. Um, Hopefully uh, we'll get to see as many listeners as as possible there. And um, Matt Wheatley is also setting up for a OBS didactic next year. True, Uh, false? At SAEM, we submitted a couple ideas for didactics to the SAEM meeting uh, May of 2015 in San Diego. So uh, I think we'll hear back as to whether those were accepted in January. All right. And, and we're talking about putting on an observation medicine conference here at Emory uh, next fall. So Somewhere in there, yeah. Stay tuned, stay tuned with that. Stay tuned. So uh, with all that in mind, uh, we're going to probably do some more shows this year and pick up the pace some. But uh, like we said before, if you don't have OBS, you've got a problem. Amen to that, brother. <laughs>